In our first two episodes, we discussed the ways that King Lear both offers and withdraws stability and consolation. In this episode, we speak with Simon Palfrey, Professor of English at the University of Oxford, about three particular moments in the play when familiar perspectives are stripped away and characters must find a way to face a new reality. Our first speech comes from the scene when Leah has been locked out in the storm. The storm moves him to consider how other people exposed to the elements may be suffering. And then, almost as if conjured up by his words, the naked beggar, poor Tom, appears. Poor naked wretches, wheresoe'er you are, that bide the pelting of this pitiless storm, how shall your houseless heads and unfed sides, your looped and windowed raggedness, defend you from seasons such as these? Oh, I have taken too little care of this. Take physic, pomp. Expose thyself to feel what wretches feel, that thou mayst shake the superflux to them and show the heavens more just. Fathom and half, fathom and half, poor Tom. These are the final words before the entrance of poor Tom and when Lear becomes mad. And as, as such, they, they intimate the wisdom that his madness similarly if distractedly articulates and they work as a kind of pledge to be taken up when his full mind returns you know we, so he's just before he goes mad he's got this moment of compassion and therefore we, we we can return to that we have a bit of faith we can put it in our pocket but as much as Lear is the first focus of attention the pathos of the speech only partially arises from this kind of confessionary aspect oh I've taken too little care of this and so the effects of the speech come from the way the speech goes outside Lear for its substance and its appeal. Okay, so the appeal to the audience is exemplified in the phrase, where so where you are. Okay, so the you he's addressing is supposedly the poor naked wretches kind of cowering in their holes or freezing under hedges. But at the same time, it's the audience themselves out in the open air who are directly appealed to by the speech's invitation to expose thyself. Now, this appeal is centred in the feminine openness of the phrase, where so where you are. Notice how it's all vowel, almost all air, okay, air, air, air. And it makes it multiply addressed. So it's spoken directly to the audience and to each member within it and sort of beyond their heads into some space where they might conceivably find themselves or find a suffering compatriot. And so Leah is positing more than a brief episode of slumming it. He's praying for an exposure to feeling. It's a crucial word in the play, this idea of feeling. I see feelingly, feeling both one's own and others' feelings. And so there's sort of social or political message that we've all taken too little care of the suffering that we can safely ignore. That's an it's an instruction to look more sensitively, to listen more sensitively to attend to whispers and murmurs, to attend to stuff that's not staring us in the face. Okay, so, so I think there's, a, there's an idea in which the kind of attention that theatre demands is the kind of attention that the world demands. It's a vindication of the urgency of theatre, of, of, of the relevance of theatre. Expose thyself, you know. I think it, it, it's imagining the feel, it's, it's imagining the presence in, in the audience and the kind of recognition 
in oneself as as, as that Lear here. There's a kind of moment of shared exposure and shared recognition. Now, there's also in this speech typical subdued puns of Shakespeare. So, for example, "Bide the pelting of this pitiless storm" contains at least two jokes. Not really funny jokes, but they're sort of puns. "Bide" means both endure and live within, and pelting means both the hammering of the rain, but also clothing. So clothing is a pelt. So so the, the wordplay, the idea of the wordplay is that the stinging rain is all the clothes that these poor people have, or these sort of phantoms have. The pelting is the suffering and the nakedness. They have to wear the storm. It becomes part of them. Right. So this in turn evokes the challenges of the storm, the invitation to at once undress and redress. So the pun on pelting allows the speech to escape from material immediacies, you know, getting drenched, feeling miserable, thinking about all the other poor sods suffering the same, and allows us to dimly promise some kind of safety and regeneration. The idea of, as I said, undressing and redressing, making it better. But there's still more going on here, because unknown to the king and perhaps unknown to the actor, he's also talking to somebody else present on the stage, and this is Edgar disguised as poor Tom, or it's simply poor Tom, the houseless beggar, who's hidden somewhere, maybe in the discovery space or maybe beneath the trapdoor. Okay, you've got the character hiding from capture and the actor waiting for his cue. Now, it's obvious that Lear is ignorant of this figure's presence, but, but do we see him? We in the audience? Maybe, maybe not. Either way, he's going to manifest himself as the necessary subject and addressee and answer to Lear's prayer. Okay, so what the thing that we need to think about here is the sort of beautifully mixed temporality to the relationship here between words and body. So in one sense, Lear's prayer answers to the, to the already existing wretches in the world of the poor sods. And it's a moment of belated recognition. Okay. In another sense, the body hidden and then erupting into view is the perfect answer to Lear's prayer. So remember that the speech ends and up comes poor Tom, fathom a half, fathom a half, poor Tom. Now there's more than strategic irony or magical serendipity going on here because Lear's words literally demand the figure that issues from them. Now the crucial word here is superflux. Now this is usually understood to mean superfluousness. So Lear is recommending a fairer distribution of resources between rich and poor. Now, that's part of the meaning, but not, I think, the primary meaning. So superflux, he says, uh, shake the superflux. Superflux is Shakespeare's unique construction. He makes up the word. Now, it doesn't primarily mean extraness. It means a superflow. Flux is flow. So all the derivatives of flux around this time refer to flows of water or flows of blood, especially linked to women's bodies. So fluxion for example, men, men, menstruation or, or indeed abortion. So Lear's speech is a kind of mother giving birth to the figure or is, is maybe giving birth to the kind of abortion almost who erupts from the uterine fathom and half gulf below the stage. Hence the pun on wretch. So the wretch is wretched up, vomited or vented into presence. So it's typical of Shakespeare to be, to be layering these kind of puns, these kind of jokes, these deeply serious moments. So this is a true cathartic moment. We think of catharsis and, and, and tragedy of, this, of a kind of purging. 
a moment of this is a moment of violent cleansing. And the figure that emerges is both a homeless wretch <coughs> and the suffering figure of pomp. Poor Tom is the wretch. Edgar is a suffering figure of pomp or, or wealth. He has to go on to, to bear the burden and to experience the extremity that the king's prayer recommends. Okay, so it's the answer to the prayer who goes on to, as it were, make the prayer pay its own promises. So it's a classic Shakespeare moment where bodies issue in words, words issue in bodies, and all of them are overlayered and overdetermined and sort of active in every cell, both the cells of the words and the cells of the bodies. Our next speech takes place after Gloucester has asked poor Tom to lead him to the edge of a cliff where he is intending to jump to his death. The disguised Edgar tries to convince Gloucester that they are on a cliff's edge. It's a strange liminal moment between life and death. It's also strange because Edgar's fabulously descriptive words are just words. The cliff he's describing doesn't exist. But, of course, in a play nothing exists except as it's described in words. Come on, sir. Here's the place. Stand still. How fearful and dizzy it is to cast one's eyes so low. The crows and choffs that wing the midway air show scarce so gross as beetles. Halfway down hangs one that gathers samphire dreadful trade. Methinks he seems no bigger than his head. The fishermen that walk upon the beach appear like mice, and yond tall anchoring bark diminished to her cock, her cock a boy almost too small for sight. The murmuring surge that on the unnumbered idle pebble chafes cannot be heard so high. I'll look no more, lest my brain turn and the deficient sight topple down headlong. Set me where you stand. So this is a, a moment that that is kind of amazing moment. The speech gets its meaning and its importance, not simply from the words that are spoken, but from the situation. In Shakespeare, ambiguity, in other words, the idea that you, you don't quite know what's happening or more than one thing might be happening at the same time. Ambiguity isn't just there in words, in language, words having two or three different meanings, but it's there in situations in Shakespeare, and that the very situation has more than one construction. That's totally unique. No other writer writes in ways in which the, the very thing that's happening is ambiguated. But that's absolutely the case all the every, everywhere in King Lear, and most perhaps most strikingly in this scene, because we've got this is a scene where Edgar is leading Gloucester to the cliff so that Gloucester can jump to his death. But it's then again, it's not Edgar, it's poor Tom. It's mad Tom, as he's called. So what is it? We've got this kind of, we've got a naked man or a mad man leading a blind man to the edge of a cliff. Put in that terms, we've got the edge of morality play and this idea very simply of a soul on its way to judgment the sense of where you've got this very spare, spartan, allegorical kind of world, where in both the characters 
and the situation, the place, is allegorical. Blind man, naked man, cliff edge. You can just see the allegorical notion of that. But it's not only that, is it? It's also a son with his father. But it's a son where, where, where the father doesn't know it's his son, but the son knows it's his father. And so it's a situation, uh, on the one hand, you've got these characters who are absolutely every man, could be anybody. On the other hand, it's a situation of absolute intimacy on the one part, where you've got the son, as it were, hiding from his own father, seeking to save his father's life, not known by the father. And so it's a kind of exquisite but also kind of excruciating moment of a family drama. Okay, so that, that begins to give you the, some, some sense of the strangeness of the moment and the kind of both metaphysical and experiential stakes in this moment. So where are we? We're at Dover, you know, the, the, the White Cliffs of Dover, the edge of the country. But we're also not. We're not at Dover. We're in some unknown, unnameable terrain beyond or before anywhere. So again, we go in. So the place is very specific. Gloucester told the, the madman to take him to Dover, but then we're not there. We are there and we're not there. Okay. So we're in a place where souls enter or leave one world for another, wherever we are. We're at a liminal place. Liminal between what? It's between land and between land and sea, between high and low between here and not, between life and death. It's a borderland. It's a frontier. It's also a kind of magnet. But it's also a place that is beyond verification, where we, we cannot prove where we are. We cannot really know where we are. We're at the threshold of possibility. So it's one at the same time, it's a kind of public horizon, right? The idea of a horizon is important, right at the edge of the known world. It's a metaphysical puzzle, and it's a deep inward journey. It's a journey into the mind, into the soul, into the kind of most extreme possibilities that a human can ever do. Think of, think of the son with his father or a father with his son. But at the same time, it's also just an empty stage. Nothing's there. So what can we see? We go to the actual words. One answer to this, what can be seen, is absolutely nothing because there's nothing there. Another answer is we can see everything that's being spoken, the crows, the chuffs, the beetles, the samphire, the fishermen, the mice, the cock, the pebbles and stuff. We can see all these things. There is nothing there. At the same time, everything is there. Because in a play world, we can only ever see what we are told is there, because we are never there. And so it's a moment which both is an absolute moment of theatrical mimesis and a moment where, where, which is just imitating mimesis. You couldn't get a more exquisitely sort of metatheatrical moment than this. But one thing this does is because nothing is there, it, it sort of magnifies the presence of the things that are spoken. It, so the reality of the scene is entirely produced and kind of magnetic in the things spoken. Each detail gathers crystal dimensions. So one thing to think about here is the way, look at the line endings. 
So we're at the edge of a cliff or we're at the edge of an imaginary cliff. Imagine that each line is a cliff and then look at the sort of last couple of words of each line. How fearful, so low, midway air, halfway down, dreadful trade, anchoring bark, murmuring surge and so forth. Look no more. Each one suggests this kind of precipitous world. We have to remember that we've got here a speech which is seeking to persuade the listener, Gloucester, that he is in a certain place. It's seeking to dissuade him from jumping because it's so high. At the same time, it's a speech that expresses the inwardness, if you like, the terror, the fear of Edgar. Methinks he seems no bigger than his head. The fishermen that walk upon the beach appear like mice, and yon tall anchoring bark diminished to her cock, her cock a boy, almost too small for sight. You see that fisherman, mice, cock, boy, disappearing. So the figure of the, the, the boy is becoming smaller and smaller and smaller, kind of just moving into annihilation. It's a speech which is crucially about perspective, and about the process of, of perspective. We see one thing and then another. That, that one thing is magnified and then shrunk. We zoom in, we zoom out. There's a recognition all the time that everything that is seen is not just one size. Nothing is just one size. It depends from, from what perspective is looked at. The final thing I want to say here is Shakespeare's got, I'll look no more, lest my brain turn and the deficient sight topple down headlong. We can see that what Shakespeare is doing is making sight itself and deficient sight at that is the subject. The subject is the very notion of vision, of seeing, of apprehension. And we get this vertiginous derangement in Shakespeare, this, this, this strangeness and so forth, in which he's, this, the thing that he's talking about is the very possibility of seeing and the relativity of seeing. And the fact that, that lives, possibilities, sounds exist beyond seeing, but which can only be seen through the imagination, just out of reach. And so this is a, this is a perfect example of, of how Shakespeare's plays work. It's, a, it's an allegory of Shakespearean creativity, but of course it's also about death about the temptation of death, about the possibility of extinguishment, or indeed the impossibility of extinguishment. So what happens if you make that leap? Our final speech comes from the very end of the play, in the 1623 folio version, after Leah has entered with Cordelia's dead body. This is another strange moment suspended between life and death, and a moment that brings together the play's key images and concepts, especially the concept of nothing. And my poor fool is hanged. No. No. No life. Why should a dog, a horse, a rat have life, and now no breath at all? I'll come no more. Never. 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 Pray you undo this button. Thank you, sir. 
do you see this? Look on her. Look. Her lips. Look there. Look there. He faints. My lord. My lord. Break out, I pray break. Look up, my lord. Vex not his ghost. Or let him pass. He hates him that would upon the rack of this tough world stretch him out longer. Now, I think the one thing that's crucial in this scene is as much as the focus of attention is upon Lear and Cordelia, the bodies of Lear and Cordelia are surrounded by all these other attending bodies, that sort of supplicating bodies, and in particular those of Edgar and Kent. And that's important, I think. Shakespeare in this scene is bringing together the entire play, this moment of Cordelia's death, or, or, or indeed Lear's death, is one which, like a piece of music where you've had all these kind of motifs and themes which have been foreshadowed and, and coming to a, a, a kind of a climax here. And so it's no accident that the first thing he says in this speech is, and my poor fool is hanged. Now, this is a famous moment where we don't know who he means by the poor fool. He, he may refer to his fool who has disappeared since the storm scene. He may refer to Cordelia calling her my poor fool as a term of endearment, which also links to the idea that often the, the roles of the fool and Cordelia doubled in performance. So they have the, the idea of other lives and other deaths are present in this life, this death. This kind of spectral presence is really quite important. No, no, no life. And then again, this why should a dog, a horse, a rat have life and thou no breath at all, which returns us to this question of, of the animal world, of beasts, of the non-human, of the question of is there any priority, any hierarchy between the human and the animal, the non-human, or not? It's a question. The play ends on a question. There are no answers here. They're just questions. The main things that, that, that Shakespeare does when he, assuming that he revises the play in the folio version the main thing that he adds is that the extra never never nevers and he adds the look there look there to focus on cordelia he says they'll come no more and then never 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 one of the things i think is important here in the way in which shakespeare stretches out this pentameter with five repetitions of the of the word never is that it's the culmination of all the questioning about nothing. This is the kind of nothing to end all nothings. But in, in the, the simple fact of repeating never, as it were, each nothing, each never is also supplemented, is added to. So in one sense, never, the repetition of never kind of drums home the fact of oblivion, of death. But on the other hand, what it does is sustains the question about neverness, about nothingness. And the question is, life or no life? 
And he says, pray you undo this button. Now, in saying that, and he says it almost certainly to Edgar, it's the moment which recapitulates, which returns to the kind of pivotal moment in the storm scene when he saw poor Tom, and he says, unaccommodated man, his man is no more than such a poor, bare, forked animal as thou art. And then says, pray you undo this button, sir. He says that exactly the same thing here. And so what we're getting, again, this idea of spectral presences, a kind of sense in which whatever the figure of poor Tom was, that figure is kind of repeated in this figure. It's repeated both in the figure who's undoing his button, caring for him at this moment of near death, but also in the figure of, of course, Cordelia herself, who, like Tom did, is, is kind of encapsulating in her own mute body all possibility. Thank you, sir. And then he ends with, do you see this? Look on her, look her lips, look there, look there. Now, this is a famous moment because Shakespeare revises the the quarto version, which just had "Thank you, sir," and he and he died with with "O" oh, instead of "Look on her, look her lips, look there, look there." Now, one question is: is what is in Leah's mind? Does he think that Cordelia is alive? Is he saying, look, she's breathing, look, I can see it. Or is he saying, look at this, she is dead. She's, as, as he said a bit earlier, she's as dead as earth. That's a question which is completely open. It's impossible to legislate or to to decide upon one or the other. It can be both and or, or either. It can mean he dies thinking that she's alive. He dies knowing that she is dead. Both of those things are true. And there's a kind of counterfactual necessity to either of them, as it were. But, it, what, but one thing that's certain here is, and I think we need to think about how this, this, this scene works by thinking about the fact of performance. And one thing this does is it forces everybody on the stage, but also everybody off stage, to look at the body of Cordelia. And what happens, therefore, assuming that it's actually the body of the actor, what happens if we see the body breathing? What happens if we see a little, a little moment earlier the feather blowing? He puts a feather to her lips, or he can put a glass to her lips. What if we see the glass frosting over? The play is pushing at the idea of life or death, and it's a, it's just the, and it's the, the body of Cordelia is taking this enormous burden of expectation and fear and hope, and the question of the actor's body taking this enormous burden. And there's something here where Shakespeare's playing with the impossibility of death or the question about whether death is possible or not. He does it in this cliff scene when, when Gloucester jumps and says, am I dead or not? You know, he's doing the same thing here. So what, what if theatre has a kind of reality here that the script doesn't, doesn't have? The script says she's dead. But what if the, the actor is self-evidently alive? Shakespeare seems to be touching upon that cusp between living and dying. So we've talked about the idea of look there, look there, may suggest a kind of redemptive reading, as though she's come, she's, she's come back from the dead. Similarly, notice the way in which the responses of Edgar and Kent are also touching upon potentially spiritual, religious, kind of eschatological reading. So eschatological, in other words, the idea of final judgment. So, my Lord, my Lord. Now, my Lord may be referring, may be speaking 
to Lear. It may be speaking to Kent. It may be speaking to God. Look up, my Lord. And then Kent says very explicitly, vex not his ghost, let him pass, as though Lear has actually passed beyond this world into an afterworld, and Kent is kind of speaking to that world. And I think it's 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 typical of the play's range and audacity that Shakespeare is kind of entering that gap between living and non-living. And everything in this scene is perilously in that space, that space of doubt, that space he can't quite enter, but he sort of enters it anyway. Shakespeare for All is written and produced by Maria Devlin McNair. Executive producer is Zachary Davis. Associate producer and narrator is Gemma Deer. Original music and sound design is by Jack Pombriant. This episode featured performances by the following actors. Michael Burtonshaw for Lear and Edgar, Poor Naked Wretches, and Lear, Edgar, and Kent, and My Poor Fool is Hanged. Kelly Hunter, MBE, for Edgar and Gloucester. Come on, sir, here's the place. For this course, information was drawn from and ideas were inspired by the following sources. Marjorie Garber, Shakespeare After All. Emma Smith, This is Shakespeare. Susan Snyder, King Lear, A Modern Perspective. And the following editions of King Lear. The 1997 Arden Shakespeare, the 2009 RSC Shakespeare, and the 2016 Norton Shakespeare. Shakespeare for All is a Lyceum original production and available exclusively on Himalaya Learning. You can gain access to the full course by going to Himalaya.com Shakespeare. Thank you for listening. See you next time.